Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is Sebastian Riedel. He is a researcher at Facebook AI Research and a professor at University College London. I guess I first met Sebastian at the first Automatic Knowledge-Based Construction Workshop, AKBC. I enjoyed seeing Sebastian talk there, and it's really great to have you on the program. Welcome. Yeah, pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Today, we're going to be talking about knowledge-based construction as a topic. It's something that Sebastian has worked on a lot, and I dabbled in at least a little bit. My thesis was related to this. I've not dealt with it a lot in the more recent years, but um, it's an important topic. So um, I guess, Sebastian, maybe you could start this by just giving us a brief description of what knowledge-based construction is and why people care about this. So yeah, like uh, knowledge-based construction or automatic knowledge-based construction, I guess it's generally about taking text, um, but also more recently other kinds of modalities and sort of representing that text, say a document collection, in usually some form of knowledge graph where you have edges corresponding to relations and en- nodes corresponding to entities. And these relations connect these entities in terms of how the entities are related. Then that's supposedly good for all kinds of downstream applications, such as question answering, such as showing these semantic panels you see on Google today. When you query for an entity, you see a bit of sort of right-hand side information. That's actually information that comes from these knowledge graphs, which can be automatically extracted or produced based on text, and then that's called automatic knowledge-based construction, or they could be manually annotated. And then, like for me, it's an interesting field because it sort of combines two angles. One is that I think it's one of the few, what I call like naturally occurring semantic representations in the world where people have been building, even before we thought about NLP, and even without thinking of NLP at all, have been building representations of meaning of a certain domain such that they can access it uh, in an effective way. And I contrast that with, I don't know, let's say first order logic semantic parsing where, you know, they aren't like necessarily naturally occurring big databases of first order logic uh, statements that uh, we use for any kind of downstream task. That's usually an academic endeavor, right? Where we are thinking, you know, how could we represent language maybe using first order logic? And so let's build a data set for that. Whereas in KBC, they exist these databases. They exist Freebase back then, Wikidata. They exist uh, the Google Knowledge Graph. They exist a lot of biomedical knowledge graphs, right? That have been built even without any sort of like NLP in mind, just because these seem to be reasonable and useful data structures for downstream users. So I think that's kind of interesting. And it's, I think, has some interesting consequences in terms of the kind of work we do in that space, as in this whole idea of distance supervision which is really big within uh, knowledge-based construction, I think that's something we see there a lot, and we see it a lot because they exist naturally occurring, you know, semantic representations of meaning. So I think that is really interesting from a very applied point of view. And uh, I guess my applied, you know, heart in me is, is sort of liking that. On the other hand, I think it's a really interesting AI problem in the sense that we have to build agents, right, that go around and observe the world and somehow assemble what they observe and represent it in some kind of memory in order to later on access that knowledge again. And so I think you can look at KVC or AKVC also as 
like one hypothesis in terms of how agents can do this, right? In the traditional AK AKBC world, you sort of build these relational graphs and the idea is then that agents have these relational graphs of the world which they can use later on to answer questions about it. And I think that's one way to go about it. I think there are a lot of other ways to go about it. And like in recent uh, months and years, I think we've seen a lot of sort of other ideas in that space that I think would be interesting. But, but still, I think it's an interesting fundamental question of how agents can go around the world, observe things, represent it somehow compactly, and then make inferences on top of it or share it and all of that. So, so it has these two angles that I find really exciting. Yeah, that's a really good description. And I hadn't thought about this like naturally occurring collections of facts perspective before. That's nice. Like IMDB is, is another example that you didn't mention, but, but that people have used like just collections of facts about movies. People just naturally build these things. You're totally right. And WordNet. So I guess that's a good way of thinking about like what a knowledge base is. It's just a set of um, facts that someone might just write down about something then you start to think about how might this be used in a practical NLP setting? You could try to get super low level and think about, well, what about part, like finding sentence structure, parsing sentence structure, like I ate spaghetti with a fork. Yeah. If I know facts about forks, maybe that will help me know that fork should attack to the eating and not to the spaghetti. Whereas I ate, a sp I ate spaghetti with meatballs. If I know about these things, it will help me attach meatballs to spaghetti and not to eat, right? But this is something that no one actually uses a knowledge base for, right? This is something that typically, at least these days, something like Elmo or Bert or whatever will just pick up by seeing a whole bunch of text. So what's different about these collections of facts that people write down? Does, does this question make sense? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And to me, it points to one of the sort of maybe disappointments I, I have with sort of AKBC in the sense that well, I think the kind of methods that we developed and the pipelines that we have and the existing knowledge bases that we built with these, they're kind of possibly useful for users somewhere. Within NLP, I have seen very little evidence that they're useful for other things in NLP we could be doing for it. It just hasn't really happened. And so we've been sort of happily working on better distance supervision and better relation extraction with the hope that there are sort of a lot of maybe industry usages of it. But in terms of actual further AI uses of it that we directly see, I haven't seen much. And I think generally that's the problem of recall. Like we don't have enough coverage of uh, all the facts you'd need in a way. And the reason for that is that even if you give an AKBC system the same knowledge or the same text you'd give, say, Elmo or Bird, the AKBC system will need to chuck out so much of the information in there based on the kind of relational ontologies it uses, based on the kind of pipelines that make mistakes. So you lose so much information there that uh, it's unlikely that for like the cases that you just mentioned about like forks and spaghetti and whatnot, that exactly the knowledge that you need will be in the knowledge base at enough times. And I'm, I'm generally skeptical about knowledge bases as a sort of form of downstream enrichment of NLP tasks. Like I think uh, we have never seen anything like the impact of Elmo and Bird in terms of downstream performance increases in the AKBC world. And I doubt that we'll necessarily get there. I think when you, when you think about AKBC from the perspective of building these graphs of facts and entities and relations, then to me, like the main point of that is because 
there are users who want exactly that, right? And they, they will use that in one way. And they, there's this interface. If you want to sort of do better X, Y, Z on top of it, I don't think it's the best way. And I think other approaches are better. And I'm sort of interested in the middle ground between these, obviously. But um, I think that's really something where I'd say, no, you wouldn't even use a knowledge-based construction method in that case. I think you use it if you want interpretable representations of knowledge that you can give to a human or some kind of other agent. But the minute that's a machine learning agent, you train with some other downstream data, I think there'll be better representations for you to feed into. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good perspective. I would though like to push a little bit more on the distinction between spaghetti and meatballs and forks and say Barack Obama and Michelle Obama uh, and US presidents or former US presidents, or for example, Sebastian Riedel and Facebook AI research, like there's a relationship there yeah. that I'm, I'm quite certain that Elmo doesn't know, but your webpage knows or Wikipedia might know. I, don't, I haven't checked if you have a Wikipedia page or what, but what is it that's different about these things such that Elmo does know about spaghettis and forks, but doesn't know about the facts that you might see in a collection of facts? That's a good question. I, I like to point out at this point that we actually have been testing Elmo and Bert a little for that kind of relational knowledge. And it turns out, at least in sort of preliminary uh, results that we have, that it that is actually not too bad, even with some of this relational knowledge, right? It might be right for the wrong reasons, right? And it might just be guessing that, uh, you know, based on various cues, it might not remember that I was, you know, I'm part of Facebook AI research or something like that, but it somehow gets it compared to an off-the-shelf relation extraction system, for example, not so much fewer. I don't know, this is... This is weird English, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, it actually gets it uh, right relatively often in comparison to to these systems. So I kind of challenge a bit the even the assumption that there's a big difference between that. And we actually also looked a bit in common sense knowledge in Elmo and Bird. And yeah, it's sort of well known that it does that. But it's sort of on a similar level, at least with some amount of types of relations that we're looking at. This is really interesting. I actually haven't heard anyone talk about trying to explicitly check for facts and stuff. We have some people starting to look into this a little bit. When OpenAI GPT-2 came out, the first thing I did, I read the articles, for those who have been sitting under a box and don't know about this, OpenAI released this super huge language model that generated, to me, very surprisingly coherent long-form text. Obviously not as coherent as a person, but much, much more coherent long-term than I had ever seen before. And so the first thing that I did after realizing how good this looked was to look at the facts. Like it, it mentioned Cincinnati and it mentioned uh, like a train robbery in Cincinnati and then mentioned Covington Station. Turns out Covington Station is a train station, but it's not in Cincinnati. It mentioned the U.S. Energy Secretary. Turns out there have been like 14 or 16 of these in the history of the U.S. Energy Secretary position. And I think the name it associated with the U.S. Energy Secretary was Tom Hicks which is not one of those 14 people that have, that have actually held this position. So like, it has some general concept of what kinds of facts are related, but it's not remembering at all the specifics of those facts, right? Yeah, that's probably even similar to what we have observed in some sense, it, I, in the sense that there would be example where it's, it gets it completely wrong, right? But there are actually quite a few examples where it gets it right. And if you look at the recall, coverage of existing relation extraction systems for these kind of relations, they actually miss a lot of things as well. So I'm maybe not saying like BERT or GPT-2 gets it like perfectly right, but it's not that far off, right? And so relatively speaking, you know, that's still quite impressive. 
Yeah, yeah, de definitely. And I, my intuition here, maybe you have other evidence, but my intuition is that the things that it can remember are things that it's seen a lot because they're like head entities. Uh, people and places that are talked about a whole lot, whereas stuff that's more rare, which would be caught, like if, if it was mentioned once and yeah. your, your knowledge-based construction method had a reliable extraction for that mention, it would remember it and be in the knowledge base and be available to, for, for use in the model uh, without having to have seen the thing a whole lot of times, right? That feels to me like the distinction here that, that these more learning-based store facts in my weights kinds of approaches work for things that I see a lot and that are mentioned frequently, but knowledge-based construction is particularly useful for things that I don't see a whole lot and I just want to remember. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, I, I think that is probably true. It's a good thing to further test. I, I think you're right that a relation extraction system, like if the particular pattern in the text has been trained or you have sort of training data for that pattern, it, it usually gets it, right? It's just that when a thing only appears once and it happens to be in the wrong pattern, it's also completely lost in the relation extraction system. So the output sometimes is relatively similar, but there is definitely a tale of things that the RE system would get that like BERT or GPT-2 wouldn't get uh, due yep. to what you said. I, I think that's, that's fairly true. Okay. Yeah, great. This was interesting. Not, not exactly what I was intending when starting this discussion, but it was really interesting to talk about. Um, so I think we've gotten a good handle on like what a knowledge base is and why someone might care about it. Yeah. So um, I think we should move on to talking about knowledge base construction. How did this come up as a field? Like it's, it feels to me like it grew out of some other related methods. You have a lot more perspective on this than I do. How do people build these knowledge bases? I guess it's usually some sort of pipeline that involves a couple of steps. First step is to figure out what are the entities in text using named entity recognition. Then you link these entities to existing entities in a knowledge base or you cluster them in co-reference such that the same or mentions that refer to the same entity are sort of really linking to the same entity clustered together. And then you figure out relations between these mentions in text. So I don't know if you find the sentence Barack Obama was born in Hawaii, then you figure out Barack Obama is an entity, Hawaii is an entity, that Barack Obama refers to the president Barack Obama most likely in Hawaii refers to that place. And then you look at the phrase was born in and you have some model that you know knows that that means the birthplace of that entity is the other entity. And I think that in a nutshell, is a at least a traditional way of extracting or building knowledge bases. There are different variants of that in terms of how you define or work with the schema that your knowledge base should have. Is it an open schema or is it a closed uh, schema? Different ways of dealing with different amounts of supervision. Can I jump in here? Can you give an example of what you mean by open schema versus closed schema? The closed schema is I have maybe an existing knowledge base and I decide I want to model four types of relations ahead of time. One being maybe born in, birth date, profession or employer, and spouse, let's say. And so you have these like four relations and uh, they are your schema. And everything you're going to do with text will fit into that, into that schema. Any information in the text that doesn't fit into that schema will just be discarded. And then later on, you can make inferences using that knowledge base that you construct, but only in terms of these four relations. So that's what I would call closed schema information extraction. And then you have the sort of idea of open information extraction, where on the other extreme, 
the kind of relations you extract are essentially the phrases you see between the entities in text. So if in the text you have the phrase was born in as a phrase between Barack Obama and Hawaii, then was born in becomes one of the relations of your schema. And every time you see a new phrase between your entities, that will become a new relation. But this approach just means like finding out what are the entities and then somewhat normalizing the phrase between the entities to make it a bit more like an actual predicate. These are the two options at the far ends of the spectrum, I'd say. And then there are hybrids that combine the two of them. But I think, like most importantly, you have, I guess, these two ends of the scale. Yeah, another interesting uh, distinction between open and close, I think, has to do with uh, what kind of entities you would like to represent in the knowledge base. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you want to have only named entities? Which types of named entities would you be interested in? Um, and I feel like this has a lot of implications on what relations will exist between them, and also like what yeah, what this data, the, what this knowledge base is going to be used for. Uh, I see things like WordNet. We can think of it as a knowledge base. It doesn't only have named entities, but things like Wikipedia tends to. I guess also Wikipedia has has entities that are not named. I think that knowledge base construction community focused much more so on uh, on the named entity part. Do you have any thoughts on why that was the case? Yeah, I don't know why that is the case. That That's definitely true. I am not 100% sure why. Maybe, maybe it's worthwhile to look a bit back into the history of it. I feel like a lot of KBC and information extraction comes from these early conferences, you know, the message understanding conferences, the MUC conferences uh, that DAPA organized, I think, late 80s, early 90s. They were all about, I guess, parsing military reports for events that would happen. And these events involve actors and entities. That was mostly what they cared about. And somehow I thought maybe that would just, maybe that has just stuck with the community. There must be a better reason, but I'm actually not not 100% sure. It's a, it's a good question. Why is that? It seems easier, maybe. And maybe that's one reason, but I, I also don't really know. Yeah, that's, that's my intuition, that this is because it's a whole lot easier to find named entities and to know it's a very well-scoped, well-defined problem yeah. to see a sentence like, Barack Obama is married to Michelle Obama, to find the named entities run an NER system that at least kind of works to pull out what things are named entities and then say, oh, there must be some relationship between these two that I find in the sentence. Whereas if you take something like his first three speeches as president, how do you treat that as an entity? Like language is so complex yeah. when you get away from named entities. It's not really clear what is a mention of something that might go in a knowledge base. How do you detect this? Yeah. What's going on? There's this whole wikification line of work that tries to, to link text to a Wikipedia page. But there you, even, you, you get these problems. Like his first three speeches... Maybe you would link this phrase to a Wikipedia page for speech, but that's not actually what this is referring to. Like, it's complex. Yeah. And so it's a lot easier and well-scoped to just talk about the named entities. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think what you said in the end uh, makes a lot of sense. As in, I think the core problem with that isn't maybe so much the recognition of these phrases. I mean, these are kind of noun phrases in many cases, but there could also be other kinds of phrases. But it's the linking of those or the co-reference of those that is just super hard. Like, as you said, like speeches. Like, is there a speech event that is specific that we'd want to link to or the general notion of speeches? That seems really hard. Yeah, uh, you're right. I think that's really the, the hard part. 
I think also from a utility perspective, since many of these knowledge bases, we're trying to construct them because we think that people want to use them. I feel like most of the useful knowledge bases are about immunity. So like if you think about IMDB, uh, most of the bioinformatics knowledge bases, uh, they're all centered. People care much more about curating the information for the named entities than they care about curating them for just regular entities. Yeah, that's true. It might also be that they do care about that because also that's easier to annotate and produce than actual sort of uh, other kinds of concepts or events they would have to link. So the, the simplicity of that might even play in there. It's just really hard, even manually, to build a coherent knowledge base of events and and concepts in a way that, uh, or compared to how you build a named entity knowledge base. But yeah, I, I agree. I think knowledge bases that exist in the wild, they usually have entities as such as well. Yeah, great. So going back to like how we construct these things, the general approach, as we've been talking about, you first detect what things you want to call entities, and then you, you train some system to take the language surrounding those two entities and predict a relation. Maybe you aggregate this across lots of documents. There's a long line of interesting work that you, Sebastian, were a, a big part of on distance supervision. And I wonder if you could give an overview of what this what this means. You mentioned it briefly as you were going through, but um, can you describe what this is for the listeners and what happened, like the history of this of this kind of approach? Yes, I'm happy to. So generally, the idea in distance supervision is that when you extract these relations in the traditional supervised setting, somebody goes over a lot of sentences and says, "Yes, that's a sentence expressing the birthplace relation." No, that's not a sentence expressing the birthplace relation. And they annotate this for some number of sentences, and then that gets fed into a supervised learning algorithm that then learns a predictor. But that's expensive. And thankfully, uh, to some extent, in the context of knowledge-based population, not necessary because we have these, as I mentioned in the beginning, naturally occurring sets of, of facts that we can use to in a way, heuristically annotate the sentences. And the simplest way of doing that is to say, if I have a knowledge base that contains Barack Obama in Hawaii as uh, the birthplace of Barack Obama, and I have a sentence that mentions Barack Obama in Hawaii, then I'm just going to pretend that that sentence is expressing the relation birthplace. Because I just assume that when it mentions Barack Obama and Hawaii, it must be because they're birthplace, because they're in a birthplace relation, because that's in my current knowledge base. Obviously, that can be violated, like Barack Obama just flew to Hawaii. That doesn't mean he was born there. And so you get wrong labels. And there has been a lot of work in trying to reduce these sort of wrong labels and the noise that you produce by this type of weak supervision. But by and large, I think the idea is still roughly the same. So you assume that because things are related in your knowledge base, somehow sentences that mention these related entities are more likely to express that relation. And somehow that's a training signal for your relation extraction system. That's a, I guess, specific case of relation extraction. You can generalize that notion to named entity recognition and all kinds of other tasks. You have some sort of free signal of data that you convert and then turn it into a direct signal and do that in one way or another. Yeah, great. Um, there's, there's a related issue here of how much do I trust different sources of information? 
I don't remember how much this actually got addressed in the literature. I know a few people were thinking about it, but like you've mentioned Barack Obama and Hawaii. There are also a lot of other documents on the web that, that talk about other birthplaces for Barack Obama. How do methods deal with this problem? In general, like dis- distance supervision, at least the methods you were talking about, I don't think really try to do this other than like this expressed at least once assumption that hopefully at least one of the times that I saw Barack Obama in Hawaii, it was actually expressing the relationship that's in my knowledge base. That's right. So I guess, yeah, this is less on the training side because Barack Obama and Kenya won't have a relationship in my knowledge base. It's in my actual prediction side when I'm constructing the knowledge base and I see conflicting evidence. How do I deal with this? Are you, are you familiar with work that, that does this? Um, actually not. I, I, I think it must exist. I haven't really followed up on that, but I think it is something that always comes up actually every time I give presentations that's the first thing that they ask, like, what if you extract it from a source that is wrong, right? How do you integrate that with other kinds of conflicting information? I mean, Nell and other systems had some ways of, or I guess, aggregating conflicting information in one way or another, at least that's how I remember it. So there were different signals and you sort of use that, I don't think explicitly in terms of the sources that you would take from, like you wouldn't have a trust value associated with this particular source that uh, helps you to downweigh that fact or upweigh that fact. So I am not very aware of work in that space, but that doesn't mean at all that it isn't there. I mean, it should be there. And maybe you know more about that. All I remember is a few papers. I think there were uh, there was a small team at Google on the relate, related to the Knowledge Vault team that was trying to build a knowledge base that was thinking about this stuff when extracting things from the web. There were some postdocs with Tom Mitchell on the Nell project that also briefly thought about this for a little bit. Ndapa was working on this, I think, at one point. So yeah, it just feels like a really hard problem. And maybe this is part of the reason that knowledge graphs haven't seen as much practical application, like constructing knowledge bases hasn't seen as much practical application because it's just so hard to control for the noise that you get in your input. Yeah, I mean, actually, so you mentioned this and I'm I'm interested in your view on this. Um, So you mentioned knowledge graphs haven't seen so much practical use, which I agree with in the case of downstream NLP applications of it. What I'm really uncertain about is like downstream users of that in the wild and applied and sort of in, I guess, data science or other kinds of areas, right? Where I think we always tell ourselves that there are people who use this downstream, but I'm actually not so aware of this. I mean, other than a few of the big players who are, um, like like Google, actually relying on knowledge graphs as something to, to drive their algorithms, as far as I understand. I'm not so aware of these, but I'm curious about Nell, for example, because you have been a, a part of that. Like, what was the sort of downstream use of that? Like, were there downstream uses of that? And, and how did they look like? Um, Nell, the reason I said what I, what I did is I can't really think of any knowledge-based construction projects that had practical applications. And actually, I'm looking at Waleed and thinking, uh, yes, there is, there is a, a, a big one right there, and we can talk about that in a minute. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, that Semantic Scholar is one that I totally uh, skip, glossed over as I was thinking about this. But Nell and Yago, the KBP stuff, maybe there are some like actual military applications of this that I, I... It's all a black box once you submit stuff to DARPA, so I don't know what they actually ended up doing with any of this work. Um, but I, I know that Google, for instance, canceled their knowledge-based construction project 
because it wasn't high enough precision to actually be useful in their product. Oh, I, I didn't know that. They use knowledge graphs, right? Yeah. Like I'm not saying that, that knowledge graphs don't have any applications. I get it. That the, the automatic construction of knowledge yeah. graphs has been too noisy to actually be useful for people who are, who are building these things, uh, except for um, semantic scholars. So Waleed, you want to talk <laughs> to us about that? Well, I, I think actually I would mirror what you said. Uh, I'm not aware of any practical downstream use for automatically constructed knowledge bases, including a semantic scholar. So in semantic scholar, we have been primarily, everything that you currently see on the website are in just our knowledge that's constructed from, uh, that was imported from existing databases or knowledge bases. And we currently are predicting new relationships. And uh, there is another project which we're trying to find new entities that were not originally in the knowledge base, but we have, we're still doing some verification because we only want to expose them to the user after they pass a certain threshold of accuracy. I do think that's kind of like the big question for the automatic construction knowledge base community is can we put it in a, in a, in a state where it's actually usable for downstream usage? I think part of the problem is going to be like just like the general accuracy and then part of it will have to do with how can we differentiate between things that are factual uh, or things like where the author is hedging or uh, there's a negation and we're extracting the, the, the relationship as if it's a, if it's correct so also there are also a, a long uh, like a long tail of, of situations where the fact is this this relationship is true under certain circumstances so if you do this prerequisite then this relationship holds should we add it to the knowledge base or not i feel like these are questions that are nuanced and it has not been addressed and yeah it's kind of like disheartening that with all this work in knowledge base construction we still haven't reaped the benefits. But another related effort, which is also, I think, worth mentioning here, is uh, how can we put together multiple knowledge bases? And there, I, th I, th I think people have actually made use of uh, multiple knowledge bases to, uh, because like when you have a downstream application that's relevant to multiple knowledge bases, some of them may be automatically constructed, but mostly no. We want to consolidate them somehow, and there are many efforts mostly in the data mining community that try to do this. But yeah, I think this is also very, very important. Yeah, I'll jump in just to say here quickly that a lot of Sebastian talked about open information extraction earlier in this conversation. And a lot of the more recent open information extraction stuff does try to handle this scoping of facts that are extracted. So there, there is some work on trying to do this. You would think that like the closed information extraction stuff just trains a model to extract the fact and hopefully it would pick up on this kind of thing. But that's not necessarily super accurate. But also, I'll call out a previous episode we did with Rachel Rudinger on factuality, which is also very much related. So can you detect, given some event or a verb and its arguments that are expressed in text, can you detect whether the speaker was actually implying the truth of the statement or not? And that's definitely a precondition to like accurate extraction here, right? Yeah. So yeah, th this, is, this is a hard problem with a lot of moving parts to it. Yes, this is uh, really challenging. I'm also not 100% sure whether the way to get there is to build these very precise graphs that capture all of these conditions precisely and, and explicitly in a symbolic way, or whether we can somehow improve our language models to sort of get more clever in terms of representing these things as well. Maybe that's like too far in the future, but in my I guess, ideal world, I'd rather see a, a better Elmo sort of taking care of that directly than us spending a lot of 
detailed work on labeling this correctly on a couple of instances and then getting that bit of precision or a bit of recall out of our supervised methods. So I, I guess the jury is still out on, on that. Yeah, I think the challenge here is like the, it has to do with the schema, like you mentioned before. In order to specify this information in a knowledge graph, you have to make the schema rich enough to represent it. And the more complex your schema is, you know, you need more training data for it and it becomes hard to manage. Yes. And it becomes harder, harder to annotate even, right? Like uh, the more complex this kind of schema and, and conditioning is, the harder it is to explain that to people in the right way and the more noisy your annotation gets. So I think uh, it sometimes feels like an uphill battle. Yeah, but one of the things that I'm actually very excited about in Semantic Scholar has to do with extracting. So as you know, like people, researchers introduce new terms all the time in their papers. And it's really hard to keep up with the new terminologies that are being generated every day, right? Some of it, like, make it to everyone. They, all the labs, like, I don't know, like, Bert and Elmo did a great job with this, right? But many other names that are less popular don't uh, end up being well-known. And one of the things that we're currently trying to do is learn from the terms, the scientific terms we already have seen and we see in papers, learn how people introduce these new concepts. And then we can construct, um, like it's a much more targeted kind of extraction uh, mm -hmm. for, for creating those knowledge bases uh, or at least the entities in the knowledge bases. And then the relations the relationships can come at a later time. Got it. That sounds really good. Yeah, maybe I, I just to sort of not end, but get to a more positive note because it sounded a bit like KBC is just not working at all. I disagree with that, right? Like I think it's it's sort of working and, and I think there has been a lot of progress. It is true that we haven't seen as much downstream usage of it yet. On the same time though, and like uh, this is like where I want to talk about the AKBC conference a bit, there is a lot of particularly like industry interest in this. So there must be a lot of like use for that because we just see much inbound interest in that. Probably see much more inbound interest from industry than from researchers themselves. Like researchers right now, they're all on Elmo and Bird, right? Or all the other sort of exciting things out there. But when it comes to talking to companies and their needs, the first thing they, they talk to me about is, is often just, oh, it would be great to have these knowledge bases automatically extracted from it. I also like maybe, and that's just hypothetically, I, I feel that some of the uses we'll see of Yago or Wikidata, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Wikidata is also not automatically extracted as far as I know. It's relatively hand-built, I suppose. But let's say Yago. I think there might be people out there who use that data, but they're not going to write papers about it. And we're not going to see citations coming in. But we see companies sort of using either that knowledge base or they use the ways that or the methods that are proposed in these papers that build the knowledge bases. So, right, maybe Nell hasn't necessarily seen a lot of downstream use of its facts that it extracted, but the kind of findings that we made there, you'll find them being used in big biomedical companies that extract these kind of protein-protein interaction networks from text, right? So, so I, I feel very positive about that, but I don't feel very positive about, I guess, academic reuse of knowledge bases at this point. Yeah, great. Thank you for clarifying that. I totally agree with you. I guess that made me think I should rephrase what I said previously. It's more that we haven't figured out how to make knowledge graphs useful in lower level NLP. As you said, there are a whole lot of naturally occurring knowledge bases, right? Yeah. People like these collection of facts. And so this is actually an end in itself. So yes, automatic knowledge base construction is totally useful. Yeah. If what you want is a knowledge base out, 
And what you can get about facts about real people from the web might not be high precision enough for someone like Google, but it's still useful enough for a lot of people in a lot of different specific domains. And there's been a lot of great research helping this, and that, that's totally good. It's just we don't see as much downstream uses of it in NLP because we don't really know how to consume a knowledge base in language understanding models. And that's, that's an active area of research. Yeah, I'm wondering also if we need to spend more time thinking about how can we help the curators of knowledge bases. So we know that some knowledge bases that are actively being maintained receive a lot of annotation and curation. So I think the interplay between AI and manual curation for these knowledge bases, I think maybe the easiest path to increase the adoption of the knowledge base construction methods, but it's, of course, it requires actual product. And that's kind of part of the reason why we're doing it in Smart Scholar, because there are actual users who can give us feedback on whether the things that we're extracting are correct or not. But I, I, yeah, I hope there are other efforts somewhere that, that are also copying this. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to your talk at the AKBC uh, conference on, on that. Yeah, I, I guess there were a bunch of things that I had listed that we could have talked about, but we are running out of time. Is there anything that we missed that you particularly wanted to talk about or want to highlight before we finish? Um, not from the top of my head right now. I think we covered quite a bit of ground. Um... One thing we can conclude with this with this point, you mentioned before that there's this knowledge-based construction conference now that I mentioned at the beginning that I met you at the first automatic knowledge-based construction workshop, and now it's a conference. Yeah. Do you have anything to say about that whole process of like, is this is this the coming of age of a field? Like, what what is this? Yeah, I think it's it's part of that. There is generally an a steady and increasing interest in this, which we have seen over the past, but maybe even more so. I mean, you mentioned sort of the KBC community and, and all that. There, there isn't a natural place for them in a way that there is a place for NLP researchers or vision researchers, right? Like, so if you work in link prediction, for example, which doesn't necessarily need to talk about language, right? Like, where do you submit your paper to? Like, where do you go and talk to other people in this field? It could be like AAAI or Ichikai maybe the machine learning conferences, where you just don't have the same type of domain-specific conference like you'd have for NLP. And so one guess, goal of this conference and this conference series is to become that place and get people from these different areas together and to give them a venue where they can publish their work uh, and discuss it with uh, like-minded people. So that's, I think, one of the main motivations behind it. Yeah, sounds great to me. Thanks for coming on. This has been a really interesting conversation. It's been good to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, really enjoyable. Uh, thanks so much for, for running this. I think that's much appreciated, generally. Okay.